thought you said she was dead. That was her sister, the Wicked Witch of the East. This is the Wicked Witch of the West. She's worse than the other one was. Who killed my sister? Who killed the Witch of the East? Was it you? No. No, it was an accident. I didn't mean to kill anybody. Well, my little pretty, I can cause accidents too. Aren't you forgetting the ruby slippers? of them. Their magic must be very powerful, or she wouldn't want them so badly. You stay out of this, Glinda, or I'll fix you as well. <laughs> oh, rubbish. You have no power here. Be gone before somebody drops the house on you too. Very well. I'll bide my time. And as for you, my fine lady, it's true, I can't attend you here and now as I'd like, but just try to stay out of my way. Just try. I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog too. In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama, episode 200, The Wizard of Oz. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And welcome to Verbal Diorama's 200th episode. Whether you are a brand new listener to this podcast, whether you are a regular returning listener to this podcast, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for choosing to listen to this podcast. I am, as always, so happy to have you here. For the history and legacy of the cinematic classic that is The Wizard of Oz. And, wow, 200 episodes of a podcast. Somebody pinch me. How is this possible? Have I travelled to the magical world of Oz for some bizarre reason? Honestly, I'm blown away that this is a 200th episode of this podcast. And just really thank you for listening whether you do listen every week or not, thank you for listening. Because arguably I'd not be here doing episode 200 without you, the listeners. Because as much as you think podcasters podcast because they like to hear the sound of their own voices because of some latent underlying narcissism. I mean, that might be true for some. And I do think you might have to be a little bit narcissistic to do this. But honestly, without the listeners and without their support, I personally don't think... I would have done one episode, let alone 200 episodes. So I'm just so grateful. I'm just over the moon, or the rainbow actually is kind of more relevant, but just with everything to do with this podcast. And just a huge thank you for your support for the most recent episode of Wayne's World, which just did so incredibly well. People love Wayne's World. And then it's like going from Wayne's World to The Wizard of Oz. It's kind of different, but... Just thanks if you've listened to any episode of this podcast. Um, I'm truly so grateful. And I'm going to continue doing this podcast for as long as I possibly can. Because genuinely, I love what I do. And before we get into The Wizard of Oz, I do want to give a bit of a disclaimer. Because there's 84 years of history with The Wizard of Oz. And it's going to be virtually impossible to mention everything around this movie. So... I'm going to apologise in advance if I do miss something that you're expecting to hear about. Because this episode is going to be big. But there are going to be some adjacent topics that I'm just not going to go into. Such as things like political allegories around The Wizard of Oz. 
I literally just want to focus on the history and legacy of this movie. But even then, there's so much history, so much to talk about. It's why I wanted it to be the 200th episode. But if I do happen to miss something, I apologize. I've spent a lot of time researching this movie, looking into how this movie was made. It still blows my mind how wonderful this movie is. Considering it's 84 years old, honestly, this movie is is a marvel, uh, which is ironic considering the names of characters in this movie, but this movie is a marvel. And let's just jump straight into the history and legacy of The Wizard of Oz. Lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Let's follow the yellow brick road with the trailer for The Wizard of Oz. Many, many miles east of nowhere lies the amazing land of Oz, a magnificent empire created in the mind of a man who wrote a great book about it. Like wildfire in the wheat field, the fabulous tale of the Wizard of Oz spread from town to city to nation to the entire world. Although the Wizard of Oz has captivated the children of four generations and fired the imaginations of those youthful adults who have never grown old, although 10 million copies of the book have reached eager hands and eager hearts, no one has dared the towering task of giving life and reality to the land of Oz and its people. Every delightful character of L. Frank Baum's classic is now reborn. Every glorious adventure has been recaptured and painted with a rainbow. The celebration in Munchkinland, the flying monkeys, the rescue of Dorothy, the castle of the witch, the palace of Oz, and Dorothy's strange journey to the Emerald City to find the wonderful Wizard of Oz himself. We're off to see the wizard, the wonderful Wizard of Oz. We hear he is the Wizard of Wiz, if ever a Wiz there was. If ever, oh, ever a Wiz there was, the Wizard of Oz is one. Because, 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 because of the wonderful things he does. tornado hurls through Kansas, Dorothy Gale and her dog Toto are swept away from their home to the colourful and vibrant land of Oz. In order to find their way back home, they must embark on a journey to the Emerald City, where the Wizard of Oz resides. On the way, they meet and are accompanied by a scarecrow who wants a brain, a tin man who wants a heart, and a cowardly lion who wants courage. They're hopeful that the wizard will be able to fulfil their wishes, but not far behind them is the Wicked Witch of the West, who is out for revenge on Dorothy after she accidentally killed her sister, the Wicked Witch of the East. Let's run through the cast of this movie. We have Judy Garland as Dorothy Gale, Frank Morgan as Professor Marvel and the Wizard of Oz, Ray Bolger as the Scarecrow and Hunk, Bert Lahr as the Cowardly Lion and Zeke, Jack Haley as the Tin Man and Hickory, Billy Burke as Glinda, Margaret Hamilton as the Wicked Witch of the West and Almira Gulch, Charlie Grapewin as Uncle Henry, Clara Blandick as Auntie M, and Pat Walsh as Nico. The Wizard of Oz has a screenplay by Noel Langley, Florence Ryerson, and Edgar Allan Wolfe. Of an adaptation by Noel Langley, it was based on The Wonderful Wizard of Oz by L. Frank Baum and was directed by Victor Fleming. Now, with a movie as inspirational and revolutionary and a landmark of cinema as The Wizard of Oz, you would expect a vast story and you would be 100% correct. But as always, this story starts with a story. And that story starts with unimaginable grief and loss. Lyman Frank Baum would write 14 novels in the Oz series, 
as well as 41 other books, 83 short stories, over 200 poems and at least 42 scripts. But by far his most well-known and most lauded was The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. He notably hated his first name Lyman and went by Alfred Baum as his pen name and preferred to be called Frank. He would make whimsical stories for his children before he started writing them down. The Wonderful Wizard of Oz might be a beloved story published 123 years ago, but its beginnings were less so. The Scarecrow, for example, was based on frequent nightmares Baum had as a child of a scarecrow chasing him in a field, but probably the most tragic were the origins of the lead character Dorothy. Baum was, at the time, developing his story, which started about a cyclone propelling a young boy to a magical world. He named the land Oz after a filing cabinet marked O to Z. He was influenced by Lewis Carroll's 1865 novel Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and the fairy tales of Hans Christian Andersen and the Brothers Grimm. L. Frank Baum and his wife Maud Gage had four sons, Frank Jr., Robert, Harry and Kenneth, but Maud longed for a daughter. Her sister Helen gave birth to a baby girl in June 1898 named Dorothy Louise Gage. Baby Dorothy was adored by Maud, who saw the infant as the daughter she would never have, and she would regularly travel from the Baum family home in Chicago to visit Helen and Dorothy in Bloomington, a 137-mile trip one way. When baby Dorothy was five months old, she became gravely ill and died in November 1898. Maud was devastated by the loss, and to help his wife and sister-in-law grieve, L. Frank Baum would change the gender of his lead character and name her Dorothy in baby Dorothy's honour. He would also dedicate The Wonderful Wizard of Oz to Maud Baum. The Wonderful Wizard of Oz was published on the 17th of May 1900 and due to popular requests, he'd write 13 sequels. After his death in 1919, his final books, The Magic of Oz and Glinda of Oz were published posthumously. Various sequels were authorised by his estate by Ruth Plumley Thompson, John R. O'Neill, Jack Snow, Rachel Cosgrove Pays and Eloise Jarvis McGraw. While the book is overwhelmingly beloved and was a huge hit on its release, it's not been without controversy. The Wonderful Wizard of Oz books sparked debate in 1957 in Detroit, Michigan, and were later removed from libraries on the grounds that they promoted negativism and had no value for children. One of the most well-known attempts to have the book banned in public schools in 1986 was led by seven fundamentalist Christian families in Tennessee. They even went so far as to sue schools for using the book because they did not appreciate how the book portrayed good witches. All public libraries outlawed the book in 1928 on the grounds that it was ungodly for depicting women in positions of authority. The novel has generated controversy for its positive representation of femininity over the years, and many groups have rejected the idea of women playing heroic roles and holding positions of power that are on par with those held by men. In April 2000, the Library of Congress declared The Wonderful Wizard of Oz to be America's greatest and best-loved homegrown fairy tale, also naming it the first American fantasy for children and one of the most read children's books. 37 years after The Wonderful Wizard of Oz was published, Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs came out to huge success. I've done an episode on Snow White, it's episode 81 of this podcast, but it did show that there was an audience during Great Depression America for adaptations of popular stories, fairy tales and fantasy cinema. In January 1938, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, headed by Louis B. Mayer, acquired the rights to L. Frank Baum's novel from Samuel Goldwyn, who, despite the name, had nothing to do with Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. Goldwyn had originally bought the rights from L. Frank Baum's estate in 1934 for $40,000 and had intended to make an adaptation of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz with Eddie Cantor as the Scarecrow. The Wizard of Oz obviously wasn't the first attempt to bring the story to life on screen or otherwise. A Broadway musical debuted in 1902. There were three silent films, the most popular being Larry Semmons' silent film adaptation in 1925, which had little to no magical elements. Originally, the idea was to tone down the magical elements in MGM's The Wizard of Oz, and producer Mervyn Leroy's assistant, William H. Cannon, submitted a four-page outline which included the Tin Man as a criminal, sentenced to live out eternity in a tin suit, and the Scarecrow as a man so intellectually limited that his only form of employment was scaring crows. Despite this, Leroy hired Herman J. Mankiewicz, Noel Langley and Ogden Nash to write different versions of the story with none knowing about the other's employment. And Leroy was originally lured to MGM from Warner Brothers with a lucrative contract and he wanted to direct The Wizard of Oz. 
he would have to settle for just being the producer instead. Boo-hoo for him. Noel Langley would turn in four scripts, including one incorporating the songs being written by Harold Arlen and Yip Harburg. I'm going to come back to the songs later. Florence Ryerson and Edgar Anna Wolfe would be hired to rewrite part of Langley's script after submitting their own version, contributing enough to get a screenplay credit. The writers of the movie, of which there were a total of 10 credited and uncredited writers, combined the two good witches, cut out several incidents, including all of Dorothy's admittedly anticlimactic return to the Emerald City after killing the witch, and the journey from the Emerald City to Glinda's palace. The silver shoes in the book were replaced with ruby slippers in the movie, and this was to demonstrate the power of Technicolor, which I'm also going to come to. They also added the Just a Dream ending, and the studio heads thought that the audience would be too sophisticated to accept a real fantasy land of Oz. EGM, the then richest motion picture studio in the world, cautiously entered the world of natural colour on film. And this started with the uninvited guest in 1924. Two colour technicolour scenes were first included into silent films. Many full technicolour films and shorts were also produced by them in the late 1920s and early 1930s. Even after the significantly better three-colour technique was debuted in 1934, the majority of producers were hesitant to move forward with colour pictures. Several viewers stated that colour movies gave them headaches, in addition to the higher cost, which was the same complaint they'd made about talkies a decade earlier. But by the end of 1938, with 25 technicolour films in theatres, colour had switched from being a drawback to an asset. For the 1938 film Sweethearts, starring Nelson Eddy and Jeanette MacDonald, MGM decided to go three-colour at the last minute, with Sweethearts being the first MGM three-strip Technicolor feature. It was decided that The Wizard of Oz would likewise be shot in Technicolor while that movie was still in production. When it came to casting The Wizard of Oz, it would be a cast who would become synonymous with these roles going forward. It would also be a cast routinely abused, suffering from addictions, injuries, hospital visits, and exposed regularly to poisons and toxins on set. Strap in, because this story is about to get a little bit messy. Norman Torog was originally announced as the director and started to shoot some test scenes before he was replaced with Richard Thorpe. Thorpe would film about two weeks' worth of material covering Dorothy's first encounter with the Scarecrow and several scenes in the Palace of the Wicked Witch, including her rescue, before also being replaced. Ray Bolger was originally cast as the Tin Man, despite his dream being the Scarecrow and having a vaudevillian past that he felt was naturally attributed to the Scarecrow, but the Scarecrow role was originally given to Buddy Ebsen. Bolger then convinced Mervyn Leroy to switch the casting so that Bolger was the Scarecrow and Ebsen was the Tin Man. Ebsen didn't object to this at the time. And that decision would ironically haunt Ebsen, but more on that shortly. Bert Lahr was cast as the Cowardly Lion and Frank Morgan as the Wizard after W.C. Fields' fee proved too high and Ed Wynn turned the part down for being too small. Gail Sondergaard was cast as the Wicked Witch of the West back when it was a glamorous evil queen kind of role. Think of the evil queen from Snow White as the picture in Gail Sondergaard's mind. She bowed out when the role became essentially an ugly hag and would be replaced by regular MGM contract player Margaret Hamilton who was apparently lovely in real life and nothing like the evil witch. And Dorothy, well, they originally wanted Shirley Temple for the role, who was 10 years old at the time. Temple was obviously an incredibly well-known child star, but was contracted to 20th Century Fox. Newcomer Deanna Durbin was also considered, but Judy Garland was eventually cast, mostly due to her being the most experienced and the fact that she had an existing contract with MGM. Garland was 16, going on 17 at the time, and was considered an quote-unquote ugly duckling and would be dressed in plain dresses and costumes to match the girl-next-door persona that the studio had cultivated for her. And this was in contract to the quote-unquote real beauties like Ava Gardner and Elizabeth Taylor. Even studio chief Louis B. Mayer referred to Garland as his little hunchback. Can you imagine a young woman as beautiful as Judy Garland being called a hunchback? And Judy Garland was essentially playing a child in this film, and so every effort was made to keep her looking young, including the blue gingham dress to mask her figure. They strapped down her breasts. She was kept on a strict diet to remain small and had to exercise regularly, undertaking swimming and hiking. She was prescribed amphetamines to ensure she worked as much as she could during the day. 
and stay slim and energised and barbiturates to make sure she could sleep at night. She was already addicted to both before she turned 17. Filming started on the 13th of October 1938 on the MGM studio lot in Culver City, California, but problems on set started almost immediately. Ten days into the shoot, Buddy Epson suffered an allergic reaction to the aluminium powder used on his face as the tin man makeup. His condition was so critical he ended up in an oxygen tent in hospital. Producers didn't realise the magnitude or the severity of Epson's hospitalisation and forced him to leave the production so they could source a replacement and filming was halted to cast a new tin man. Epson was replaced by Jack Haley, who assumed his predecessor had been fired. No footage exists of Epson as the tin man, save for some promotional photos which do exist on the internet. The application of the makeup was changed for Haley, so that a layer of grease paint applied underneath the aluminium makeup was there to protect his skin. Even so, Haley would still suffer an eye infection from the makeup too. The appointment of Jack Haley was on the recommendation of George Cooker, who temporarily took over as director after Mervyn Leroy felt that Richard Thorpe was rushing the production. Thorpe was replaced by Cooker, who arranged the loan of Jack Haley from 20th Century Fox. Cooker didn't direct any scenes and would be replaced after only three days. And this was more of a creative advisor role, to be honest. But what George Cooker did is he made additional changes to the production and these changes would continue with the new director. And ironically, the man who would replace Cooker, Victor Fleming, also replaced Cooker, directing Gone with the Wind. Both would be released in 1939 and both are seen as landmarks of cinema. It would make 1939 an incredibly good year to be Victor Fleming. Fleming also had to depart from Oz since he was appointed in February 1939 to succeed George Cooker as director of Gone with the Wind. And filming wasn't quite finished on The Wizard of Oz. Filming actually didn't finish until March 1939. And so the final director to work on the movie was King Vidor. Vidor did not acknowledge his directing work until after Victor Fleming had passed away in 1949. Vidor would take the remaining sepia-toned Kansas sequences, including the famous Over the Rainbow number and the tornado. And filming this movie was gruelling. With shoot days lasting 12 hours, this was over five months, and actors arriving on set at early hours to apply complicated makeup, put on ornate costumes, Makeup artist Jack Dawn produced the foam latex masks for The Cowardly Lion and The Scarecrow and was one of the first in Hollywood to use foam latex for masks. Bulger's glued-on scarecrow mask had to be carefully peeled off his face over the course of an hour each day and this process eventually left him with permanent lines around his mouth and chin. The Tin Man's suit was made of leather-covered buckram and chocolate syrup-based oil was used to lube his joints. Jack Haley couldn't sit down while wearing the costume and had to lean on a board for rest. The Cabothin Lion's costume was crafted from real lion skin and fur, weighed 80 to 90 pounds and was incredibly hot inside, with Bert Lahr suffering heat exhaustion. His elaborate makeup meant he couldn't eat while in costume, and if he did, it was a purely liquid diet. In fact, the entire set's vast and elaborate technical lighting meant the temperatures on set were often 40 degrees Celsius, that's over 100 degrees Fahrenheit because you need a lot of lighting for Technicolor. Talking of heat, things didn't get much hotter than for Margaret Hamilton, who thanks to a misfiring trapdoor, ended up with second and third degree burns to her face and hands, which landed herself in hospital for six weeks. The green paint on her face and hands was not only toxic as it was made of copper, but also caused a semi-permanent green tone to her skin that lasted weeks after filming ended. After returning to the set, she refused to do any more of her own stunts, However, her stunt double, Betty Danko, was also injured during the Surrender Dorothy flying sequence when a pipe on the broom exploded and caught fire, burning Danko. Hamilton would refuse to sue the studio afterwards, stating, quote, I won't sue because I know how this business works and I would never work again, unquote. The use of Technicolor also meant finding the right shades of colour. The Yellow Brick Road, for example, took the art department almost a week to find the right shade of yellow. Judy Garland would allegedly endure extensive abuse on set, not only being forced to take drugs, but was often referred to as ugly and fat. The drugs she was taking often caused giggling fits, and director Victor Fleming reportedly once slapped her across the face. The Munchkin performers, all of whom were individually uncredited in the finished film, instead they would be credited as the singer Midgets, that's the name of the troupe. They would make lewd comments about Garland, and some tried to touch her inappropriately. Garland was also underpaid for her work, 
with all three men playing the Scarecrow Tin Man and Cowardly Lion, paid substantially more per week than she was. She was paid $500 a week. Ray Bolger and Jack Haley's salary was $3,000 a week, but Lars' salary was $2,500 a week. Terry the dog, who played Toto, earned $125 a week. The little people playing the munchkins would also be paid, but would have half their pay taken by their manager, Leopold Singer. And this was a production that went to some lengths to make it look as magical as possible, regardless of the risks the actors on set. Quite famously, I think everyone knows the puppy-filled snow was made of asbestos. The original idea for the tornado was to film one, but the special effects coordinator Andrew Gillespie tried a different method. Firstly with a water vortex, then with a rubber cone, but the cone was too rigid. It was a trip to the airport that gave Gillespie the idea of using a windsock and constructed a tornado shape out of a muslin cloth lined with chicken wire to make it pliable. The muslin sock was 35 foot long and he connected it to a steel gantry suspended at the top of the stage and connected it to a rod on the floor. By moving the gantry and rod in different directions, the tornado appeared to be moving across the stage. Gillespie employed compressed air hoses to spray Fuller's Earth, a powdery brown dust from the top and bottom of the funnel, to create the tornado's dust and debris. The muslin was sufficiently permeable for some dirt to pass through, giving the tornado's edges a realistic appearing fuzziness. The majority of the set that is seen in the movie during that moment were filmed as miniature sets. The iconic farmhouse, fence, barn and prairie were all designed twice and in two different sizes and the clouds were painted onto layers of glass. Everything in this movie was filmed on set. There was no on-location filming for the scenes in Kansas. And this is 100% a true story. For years and years, I did not know how, in 1939, they achieved the transition from a sepia-toned Kansas to Oz's Technicolor when Dorothy arrives in Oz. And to me, that was just pure Hollywood magic. And it was almost like I didn't want to know because it just was such a magical scene. But I found out recently how they did and it blew my mind just how simple it actually was. And originally the plan was to film it in Technicolor and to hand stencil sepia tones in the sequence. But that would have taken days and days and cost a lot of money. So the scene is filmed in Technicolor, but instead the interior house set is painted in sepia tones. When Dorothy lands in Oz and you see Judy Garland in the house, clearly in sepia, you see her walking to the door, it's still sepia. The next scene is the opening of the front door. This part was filmed in Technicolor. And what they did was they basically painted everything in sepia. Judy Garland's double, Bobby Cochet, is outfitted in a sepia toned dress. She is given a sepia makeup job. Cochet walks to the door with her back to the camera. She opens the door, goes out of frame, revealing this glorious Technicolor Oz. And as she steps out of the frame, Judy Garland enters the frame in this beautiful bright blue gingham dress. It is really that simple. And honestly, it's just the true definition of Hollywood magic. And it's one of those things that you know would be filmed with CG today. But the fact that they did that all in camera, and it just looks still so wonderful. I adore that shot so much for just its wonderful simplicity. Just little things about this movie that you wouldn't think would be so simple, but they actually are. The horse of a different colour was individual white horses coloured with different geno powders. If you look closely, you could actually see where the horses started to lick the powder off because obviously it tasted nice. It wasn't toxic to the horses. It's just unfortunate that pretty much everything else was toxic to the humans. And I can't talk about The Wizard of Oz without talking about the famous ruby slippers. And those ruby slippers were designed by the mononymous Adrian, MGM's chief costume designer. Initially, there were two pairs. The so-called Arabian test pair, they had a curled toe and heels. They were used in costume tests. And this pair was owned by actress Debbie Reynolds and was auctioned off as part of her personal collection in 2011. Originally, the shoes were covered in red bugle beels to simulate rubies, but this was changed to sequins and each shoe would end up having 2,300 sequins. Over the years, anywhere between five and ten pairs have been claimed to exist, but only four pairs used in the filming have ever been accounted for. These are all between sizes five and six and with varied widths. These were all based on white silk pumps from the Inns Shoe Company in Los Angeles, 
dyed red with a burgundy sequined organza overlay attached to the upper and heel with a butterfly-shaped red strap leather bows. And the reason why the shoes were burgundy instead of red was that burgundy popped more with Technicolor than the shade of red did. These shoes were so famous that each pair became incredibly lucrative. While movie memorabilia was easy to come by in the early days of Hollywood, mostly because studios were lax with security, costumer Kent Warner came across several pairs of the ruby slippers in early 1970 after he found them in an MGM basement. He kept a pair for himself and sold a pair to Michael Shaw for $2,000 and gave another pair to MGM to auction. He would also sell the Arabian Test pair to Debbie Reynolds. The MGM pair went on display at the Smithsonian Institute after being donated several years later. But these shoes are not a true pair. The actual matches to this pair were on display at the Judy Garland Museum in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, on loan from Michael Shaw. And this pair was stolen in 2005, and the thieves would leave behind a single ruby sequin. Accusations would swirl about who was to blame. There were zero clues as to who stole these shoes. Shaw received an insurance payout of $800,000 and a decade after their disappearance, an anonymous benefactor offered $1 million for the shoe's return. But the shoes just never turned up. The FBI would get involved in their recovery and they were eventually found in 2018. They were also reunited with the mismatched pair at the Smithsonian and have been painstakingly restored and cleaned by expert conservators at the Smithsonian. There is actually a very interesting podcast about the theft of these ruby slippers from the Judy Garland Museum. It's called No Place Like Home. It's really interesting. It is an incredible story of how those slippers were stolen, how lax the security was at the Judy Garland Museum, and also how these slippers were found as well. So I'd recommend you have a listen to that podcast if you want to know more about the theft of those slippers. There's another interesting connection between The Wizard of Oz and Walt Disney. Not just that it was inspired by the success of Snow White, but when choosing an editor for The Wizard of Oz, Mervyn Leroy chose Blanche Sewell. Yes, The Wizard of Oz was edited by a woman. She wasn't a random selection, though. Despite her many years of experience in the industry, Sewell was Walt Disney's sister-in-law by marriage. Blanche's brother was married to Hazel Bounds, the sister of Walt's wife Lillian. Sewell had worked at MGM since the early 20s and remained at the company until her death in 1949. Such was her talent that according to John Stanley Donaldson, a Disney artist, Disney surreptitiously consulted Sewell after hours from MGM while Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was edited. Sewell possessed, quote, an infallible grasp of the emotion picture, an intuitive ability for cinematic pacing to strike the proper tempo and temperament, unquote. It was her insightful work that coalesced the best of Snow White's artistic triumphs and shaped them into an instantly acclaimed motion picture masterpiece. Leroy was hopeful that Sewell would work such wizardry a second time. And she did. And while L. Frank Baum died in 1919 and would never see the outstanding legacy of his work, his widow, Maud Gage, would. Metro-Golden-Mayer would pay Gage to help promote The Wizard of Oz she was interviewed on the radio programme Ripley's Believe It or Not, where she discussed how Frank's story began. She was also photographed with Judy Garland. And the after effects of her work on The Wizard of Oz was resonate with Judy Garland throughout her life and career and would ultimately lead to her death of a drug overdose on the 22nd of June 1969. She would overdose on barbiturates, the very drug that she started taking during production of The Wizard of Oz. She was only 47 years of age. By the time she died, she was not only an icon of Hollywood, but she was an icon to the LGBTQ community at large, and that community was devastated at the loss of their Dorothy. It's said, but it's never been proven, that Garland's death triggered the Stonewall riots, that finally queer people found the strength to fight back against the constant police aggression and the raid on the Stonewall Inn, a popular gay bar, the day after Garland's funeral on the 27th of June, 1969 set about chain reaction of protest. It may have been a coincidence. There isn't enough proof to say that Judy Garland's funeral caused the Stonewall uprising, but there's no proof to deny it either. The last actor living from the cast of The Wizard of Oz, Jerry Marin, died on the 24th of May, 2018. Four of the child actors used as background extra munchkins are still alive. This was as of 2022. They are Betty Ann Kane Bruno, Priscilla Ann Montgomery-Clark, Elaine Merck and Ardith Dondleville-Todd. 
But for the vast majority of the cast and crew of this movie, who have unfortunately passed on, what an outstanding legacy to leave behind to say that you worked on The Wizard of Oz, a movie that is still so beloved all these years later. And I am going to be talking about sequels and remakes because there's so much to talk about when it comes to the outstanding legacy of The Wizard of Oz. But I want to kind of segue into the obligatory Keanu reference for this episode. And what that is, if you don't know, if you've not listened to the preceding 200 episodes, I always like to try and link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves because genuinely he is the best of men. And if he was on The Wizard of Oz set, there would be no way that it would be as horrendous as it turned out. While obviously Keanu was not alive during the production of The Wizard of Oz, he would say in a 2013 interview with BBC Five Live, on remakes, I'm on the chances of him starring in a Point Break remake at the time. And he would say, quote, The Wizard of Oz or Apocalypse Now should have a no remake clause. And it's interesting that he mentioned The Wizard of Oz because it is one of those movies that everyone feels should never be remade, that there is literally no point because it is so perfect as it is. If a movie can continue being loved and adored after 84 years, surely there's no need to remake it. Obviously, there was a Point Break remake and Keanu had nothing to do with it. I've not seen it. I have no intention of seeing it because Point Break is perfect in its own right. But that's really the only way I can link Keanu to this movie is that he name dropped The Wizard of Oz once. And if you think that's tedious, well, sometimes the obligatory Keanu references just are that bad. Now, I said I couldn't talk about The Wizard of Oz without talking about the history, Elfrant Bound's book, the stories on the set, the multiple directors, the issues in the production. I couldn't not talk about the Ruby Slippers. And I similarly can't not talk about the music from The Wizard of Oz because the songs from The Wizard of Oz are some of the most famous and instantly recognisable songs of all time. And the film's principal song, Over the Rainbow, is possibly the most famous song ever written for a film. Music and lyrics for Over the Rainbow and all of the songs were by Harold Arling and Yip Hardberg. They would go on to win an Academy Award for Best Song for Over the Rainbow. And this is a song that's been covered 230 times over the years. It also became Judy Garland's signature song. She performed it for 30 years. She sang it as if she had for the film. And she always said she wanted to remain true to the character of Dorothy and to the message of being somewhere over the rainbow. Now, there are some slight inconsistencies when we talk about the music from The Wizard of Oz because some of the recordings were completed with Buddy Ebsen. As I said, Buddy Ebsen was the original Tin Man and he was still with the cast and his singing voice does remain on the soundtrack. For example, Ebsen's voice is still heard on the group vocals for We're Off to See the Wizard. Jack Haley's vocals are heard singing If I Only Had a Heart. But going back to Over the Rainbow, it might be unthinkable now but back in the late 30s, The Wizard of Oz's producers were determined to remove the song from the film. And this was because, at the time, the movie was two hours long. And they thought it was too long. And they basically went through removing several songs to bring the movie down to their targeted 100-minute runtime. It would be Arthur Freed, the associate producer, who would be credited with promoting the song's importance and insisting the song remained in the film which has created a history and legacy all of its own because in addition to being possibly Judy Garland's most enduring performance, it's said that the song likely also helped the rainbow flag gain notoriety as an LGBTQ symbol due to Garland's status as an LGBTQ icon. As I said, several songs were deleted from the finished film though, most notably the Jitterbug, which was a swing song. And this was when the group Journey to the Witch's Castle this was removed due to time constraints. Film footage of the song has been lost, although silent footage of rehearsals still remain. The audio recording of the song was preserved. It's been included in the deluxe edition of the soundtrack, as well as on the film's VHS and DVD editions. Another musical number cut before release came before right after The Wicked Witch of the West was melted and before Dorothy and her friends returned to The Wizard. And this was a reprise of Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead, blended with We're Off to See the Wizard and The Merry Old Land of Oz, with the lyrics altered to Hail, Hail, The Witch is Dead. The Wizard of Oz would make its theatrical debut on the 15th of August, 1939, after its premiere at the Orpheum Theatre in Green Bay, Wisconsin, on the 10th of August. The movie was subsequently released again across the country in 1949 and again in 1955, 
On the 3rd of November 1956, The Wizard of Oz was first shown on television in the United States. It was broadcast on American commercial network television every year from 1959 to 1991, making it the most watched movie of all time. It's also the most commercially successful version of L. Frank Baum's work and routinely appears on reviewers' lists the best movies ever made. And when it came to appear on TV for the first time, it's an interesting story because it was picked to be the first movie telecast uncut in prime time on American network TV. And the network agreed to screen the movie twice for the same price with the option to rebroadcast if the telecast was a success. MGM was paid $225,000 for the rights to show The Wizard of Oz on TV. And this was lower than the price they originally asked for. MGM asked for $250,000 for the rights originally. And interestingly, The Wizard of Oz was broadcast in colour from the outset, despite the fact that few people in 1956 had colour televisions. It was also aired as a TV event. For the first showing, Liza Minnelli, Judy Garland's eldest daughter, she was 10 years old at the time, and the cowardly lion Bert Lahr hosted the broadcast, and a celebrity special guest would appear in every broadcast until 1968. Up until the film's 50th anniversary in 1989, when the sepia tone was restored, the original sepia scenes were presented in black and white. Many viewers who viewed it on black and white televisions were unaware that the movie did actually change to colour. In 1980, it was made available on VHS and Betamax, with several re-releases over the years. It debuted on DVD in 1997, Blu-ray in 2009. The most recent release was in 2019, a 4K Ultra HD Blu-ray for the 80th anniversary. And according to MGM figures, the movie made just over $3 million in total during its initial run, with $2 million coming from the US and a $969,000 gross internationally. And this would mean the studio lost $1.1 million as a result of the film's high $2.8 million production cost, as well as when you take in expenses for marketing, distribution, etc. It took until a 1949 re-release to generate an extra $1.5 million. That's about $14 million in 2021 money before it began to demonstrate what MGM considered to be profit. As a result of the movie's popularity, Garland re-signed with MGM she received a sizable pay increase, elevating her to the top 10 American box office stars. The film was also re-released many times in cinemas and subsequent re-releases between 1989 and 2019 have grossed $25.2 million worldwide for a total worldwide gross of $29.7 million. I don't need to even tell you critically what people think of this movie because you know it's critical darling. There are very few people who don't like this movie because it's a masterpiece. It would get six Academy Award nominations for Outstanding Production, Best Art Design, Best Original Score, Best Original Song for Over the Rainbow, Best Special Effects, and the Honorary Academy Juvenile Award. It would win three Academy Awards, Best Original Score, Best Original Song for Over the Rainbow, and the Honorary Academy Juvenile Award. It lost the inaugural Best Special Effects Academy Award to The Rains Came with its earthquakes and floods. The previous year's award for Spawn of the North was an honorary one only. Judy Garland's Honorary Academy Juvenile Award was jointly awarded for The Wizard of Oz and Babes in Arms. And according to reports, Judy Garland had misplaced her original Academy Award over the years and she contacted the Academy in June 1958 to request a replacement award at her own expense. The Academy agreed but requested that Garland sign its well-known right of first refusal agreement and this protected both her original Oscar and any backups that would be created. According to the agreement which the Academy put into effect in 1950, Oscar winners or their heirs who want to sell the statuettes must first give the Academy the chance to purchase the Oscar back for the price of $10, and this sum was later reduced to $1 in the 1980s. Several of Judy Garland's personal belongings were acquired by her ex-husband Sidney Luft after her death in 1969. In 1993, Luft tried to sell the Oscar statuette at a Christie's auction. The Oscar statuette in question was Garland's 1958 replacement Oscar, according to research done by the Academy when it learned of the auction. And this was done using photos that demonstrated how the original 1940 statuette's distinctive base varied from the one being put up for auction. Then the courts ruled in the Academy's favour in 1995 and demanded that Luft return the 1958 trophy back to the Academy. Instead of auctioning the statuette off, 
Luft decided to give his and Judy Garland's youngest daughter, Lorna Luft, the award instead. Lorna Luft being, of course, Paulette in Greece too. I've done an episode on Greece too. Love Lorna Luft. The Academy then identified a second statuette that was put up for auction in 2000 as being Garland's long-lost original 1940 Oscar. The Academy initiated legal action once more to stop the sale after tracking the auction back to Sydney Luft, saying the 1940 statuette was covered under the 1958 contract that Garland had signed. In 2002, the Academy prevailed in its legal battle once more and Luft was required to give the Academy the 1940 statuette. Garland's original 1940 juvenile Oscar was made available to the public in February 2010 at the Academy's Meet the Oscars exhibition in New York City. Its 1958 replacement is thought to still be in the hands of Garland's heirs as of 2020. And speaking of Garland's heirs, because we need to talk about sequels. And so the first one to really talk about is the official sequel, The Animated Journey Back to Oz. This was produced by Filmation and it starred Judy Garland's daughter, Liza Minnelli, as the voice of Dorothy. This sequel started production in 1962, but financial issues meant it was shelved for nearly eight years. It would be released in 1972 here in the UK and in 1974 in the US. It also starred one of Judy Garland's closest friends and colleagues, Mickey Rooney, and also Margaret Hamilton, not as the Wicked Witch, but as Auntie M. The Wiz, a musical based on the novel featuring an all-African-American cast, opened in 1974 in Baltimore, debuting on Broadway the following year. A big-budget film adaptation produced by Motown Productions was released in 1978, Starring Diana Ross, Michael Jackson, Richard Pryor and Lena Horne. And my absolute nightmare fuel, a movie I will never watch again for how much it scared me, genuinely, is 1985's Return to Oz by Walt Disney Productions, starring Feruza Bulk as Dorothy, based on the marvellous Land of Oz and Ozma of Oz. Possibly the most popular adaptation of The Wizard of Oz is the stage musical Wicked, with music and lyrics by Stephen Schwartz, which premiered on Broadway in 2003. It's based on the 1995 Gregory Maguire novel, Wicked, The Life and Times of the Wicked Witch of the West. It's the second highest grossing Broadway musical of all time. It won three Tony Awards, seven Drama Desk Awards and a Grammy and introduced the world to the star power of Adina Menzel. A film adaptation has been in development since 2004. It's finally due to be released in 2024, directed by John Chu, with Cynthia Erivo as El Fava and Ariana Grande as Galinda. Legends of Oz, Dorothy's Return is a 2013 computer animated musical fantasy film loosely based on the 1989 book Dorothy of Oz by L. Frank Baum's great-grandson Roger Stanton Baum. It stars Leah Michelle as the voice of Dorothy. It was critically panned and became a box office bomb, grossing $21.7 million against a budget of $70 million and is considered to be one of the worst films ever made. Also in 2013 was Disney's second attempt at a spiritual sequel slash prequel to The Wizard of Oz with Oz the Great and Powerful, starring James Franco, Mila Kunis, Rachel Weisz and Michelle Williams. Directed by Sam Raimi, it was a box office success, but it didn't quite set the critics alight. And a remake. A remake is in the works. It is a remake of the 1939 original, written and directed by Kenya Barris. This was announced in August 2022, so we're a while away from it now, if it does ever happen. Usually the backlash against remaking classic cinema tends to take away from the remake. Maybe it might be worth it if it's a different spin on the classic story, but who knows if that's even going to happen. It's so early to say. And because I knew this was going to be such a huge episode, I decided not to do any social media comments because not only is this episode going to be huge, I know so many people would want to comment on their love for The Wizard of Oz. I knew that I would get so many comments for this movie. And honestly, I knew that the work was going to be big enough without going through all the comments and everything. So I apologize to everyone who did want to give a comment. I know so many of you reached out to me and said they wanted to give a comment for The Wizard of Oz to be included in the episode. And I apologize, but a movie like this for the 200th episode of this podcast I needed the episode to be so focused on the history and legacy of the movie. And I didn't want to take anything away from that. But just know that I know how excited people are to hear this movie on this podcast. And I know how much love is out there for this movie. And I have heard so much love and so many wonderful comments already. But I thought it would just be too much to put comments in. Comments will return in the next episode, by the way. It's been 84 years. 
in context, the same amount of time as that rose from Titanic meme. And The Wizard of Oz is still as relevant, vibrant, and perfect as ever. It started out a beloved children's book. It manifested into this cultural, cinematic behemoth. And then despite the colours, the textures, the joyous wonder of the wonderful world of Oz, there's such a darkness to this story. The state-of-the-art cinemascope and beautiful technicolour would belie the pain, abuse, injuries and illnesses on set. And they say that art is pain. And whoever did might have been talking about the making of one of Hollywood's outstanding masterpieces. And there's so much more to the story. There's too much to go into about how MGM head Louis B. Mayer continued to do business with Nazi Germany. He openly hired communists, supported high-ranking socialists for political positions of power. None of this is visible from the outside, though, because MGM always showed that they were like Kansas. There's no place like MGM. It was home. It was safe. But it also kind of wasn't. And while memories may have been tarnished over the years, and often accounts vastly differ of the experience and treatment on the Oz set, there was even an urban legend for many years that a little person hanged themselves on the set. But that's not true. It was a live bird in the background of a scene. That didn't stop many from believing that the set of The Wizard of Oz was cursed. And the set's horrors stand in stark contrast to the humorous and light-hearted nature of the finished film. This movie not only documents the history of filmmaking in terms of what Hollywood is capable of, but also the history of how Hollywood companies abused their stars and were ignorant of the potential side effects. But it's also apparent that MGM took a huge risk making The Wizard of Oz. Financially, the movie did make a loss. It took 20 years to make a profit. And it was one of the first 25 films to be included in the National Film Registry. It became a yearly family tradition through the advent of TV, then VHS, DVD and Blu-ray. Scholars at the University of Turing calculated that The Wizard of Oz is the most influential movie of all time. Studies on the politics of The Wizard of Oz are too plentiful to go into, but it's all available on YouTube slash Google if you are interested. The author Salman Rushdie, his first literary influence was the book The Wizard of Oz. And he views The Wizard of Oz as more than just fiction and a movie for kids. It's a tale in which, quote, the weakness of grown-ups forces children to take control of their own destinies, unquote. And this is due to the inadequacy of adults, even those who are well-intentioned. Rushdie disagrees with the widely held belief that the illusion of escaping reality ends with a pleasant return home. Instead, it's a movie that talks to people like outcasts, immigrants and those who are different. The Wizard of Oz demonstrates the power of imagination, the fact that there is no place like home, or more accurately, that the only home we have is the one we create for ourselves. And because this is a movie that families can enjoy together, it passes down from generation to generation. It's timeless because wonder is timeless. Its heart is worn on its sleeve, and there are no anachronisms to take you out of that. Everyone can understand the desire to return back to family, normality, home, Whatever and wherever home is for you, you just want to get back there. Above all, use your brain, never lose your heart and find your courage because there really is no place like home. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on The Wizard of Oz. And just by listening to this podcast, you are supporting this podcast and I'm so grateful. But if you do want to help and you want to get this podcast growing and evolving, you can. You can leave a rating or review wherever you found it. You can retweet or like posts on social media. I am at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Letterboxd, Hive, Mastodon, Post, and several others that are sprouting up. But really, the easiest thing you can do is, just like The Wizard of Oz, pass it on. Tell your friends and family about this podcast. Tell your friends and family who love The Wizard of Oz, because everyone in every family will love this podcast because it is genuinely that kind of timeless. And if you like this episode on The Wizard of Oz, I'm going to recommend some previous episodes slash movies. And it's mainly because they have links to The Wizard of Oz. So I want to start with episode six, Pleasantville. Now you might be asking, well, what's Pleasantville got to do with The Wizard of Oz? Well, Pleasantville uses black and white and colour in such a wonderful way, very similarly to this movie, actually. Pleasantville is nothing like The Wizard of Oz in tone, but it's such a wonderful, underrated movie, and if you find it, you should absolutely watch it. Episode 35, Spirited Away, because it's a very similar story to The Wizard of Oz. It's about a young girl who basically ends up travelling to a magical land, 
And it's a Hayao Miyazaki movie. It's one of his masterpieces. Genuinely fantastic. I've already mentioned episode 81, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, because that basically got this movie made in the first place. So if you want to start with Snow White and move on to The Wizard of Oz, that is a great double pairing. And just tacked on in the end, I wanted to add episode 63, Coraline, because again, there's a lot of similarities between the story of Coraline and the story of The Wizard of Oz, except it's more horror which is, interestingly, L. Frank Baum's original story did have a touch more horror in it. And a movie like Coraline basically takes that horror and makes it palatable, more so than Return to Oz, which is just horrific. Obviously, give me feedback and let me know if you watched any of those movies. So the next episode, episode 201 of this podcast, going to be on something completely different. It's a movie that I've actually been thinking about doing for a long time. And then it popped up a couple of times on Twitter and I thought, you know what? That is a fun movie. I went out, I bought it on Blu-ray. I'd not seen it for 20 years or so. And it's so much fun. It's not really talked about much these days, but it should be. And it's basically because it flopped at the box office back in the early 2000s. But it's a fun movie. It's worth your time. I'm going to be talking about Reign of Fire. I'm going to be talking about dragons in post-apocalyptic England with Christian Bale and Matthew McConaughey. It's going to be a lot of fun. There's also a really young Gerard Butler in that cast as well, which I did not remember Gerard Butler in that movie. But it's a lot of fun. I'm really excited to talk about Reign of Fire. So I hope you'll join me next week for episode 201, Reign of Fire. And if you want to follow the Ellibrick Road and join Patreon, then you can. That's a terrible segue, but I'm going to go with it. Then I am at verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon. And just a huge thank you to the wonderful patrons of Verbal Diorama, Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Vern, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Ian, Lisa, Sam, Will, Jack, Dave, Chris, Stuart, Sunny, Drew, Nicholas, Zoe, Kev, Pete, Heather, Danny, Ali, Tyler, Stu, Brett, and a huge hello, hi, and welcome to brand new patron, Philip who literally joined over this weekend to become a patron. Thank you so much, Philip, for your support. And basically, if I'm the Dorothy of this podcast, then my patrons are like my scarecrow, tin man, and cowardly lion. They are the heart, they are the brains, and they are the courage that I need to keep going with this podcast. So thank you so much to all the patrons. I also have a merch store. It's verbaldiorama.com slash merch. If you want to get in touch with me, you can. You can say hi, you can give me feedback or suggestions by emailing verbaldiorama at gmail.com. You can also fill out the form on my website, verbaldiorama.com. And you can also find me at philstories.co.uk. You could check out the magazine that I write for and the articles that I write online as well. And finally... Are you ready now? Yes. Say goodbye, Toto. Yes, I'm ready now. Then close your eyes and tap your heels together three times. And think to yourself, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's no place like Up, honey. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's no place. Dorothy, Dorothy, dear, it's Aunt Em, darling. Oh, honey, it's you. Bye.